Good morning, Active Church. How are you today? You're great. If you're watching online, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to just kick off with a confession, if, if that's cool. Like, um, I, I, was a, I was a church kid. I was a church kid growing up. How many of you were, you were church kids? If you don't know whether you're a church kid or not, if, if you can be gone from church for a while and then you come back and you know how to like act church or like sing church or like speak church or if you have like old church merch in your closet that you need to donate to Goodwill that doesn't fit you anymore, you potentially were a church kid. Now, I loved the church as a young kid. My, my family would go to church, and the church I went to, we would take communion like we did this morning, but we would take it every week. So every week as a part of our worship environments, there was communion. And the cool thing about it was because of the size of the church, we didn't even use like the little wafers we use now. There were some of the ladies in the church who would bake fresh bread for communion. What? But here's the better part for some of you. The juice that we would have was not the unleaded version, if you know what I mean. And so that was cool, but the better part was I got involved in a little bit of debauchery as a church kid around seven or eight years old because we discovered where they would prep all of this communion. And so as a seven or eight-year-old, what we learned was that as soon as the service would conclude, if we were quick, we could get to this room and the security was lax. And we could sit there for quite a while and just consume this fresh baked bread in between sips of Pinot Noir as kind of a post-church celebration. It's kind of, it, was, it was kind of, kind of interesting, right? And the church at that time seemed, for me, basically kind of, kind of harmless, but also pretty healthy. And many of you can relate to that growing up. But at the age of 11, something changed in my family because we had gone to church sort of uh, routine. It was like, that's what we did. And then at about the age of 11, my dad came home one day and announced to the entire family that he had found Jesus. And that he was no longer going to attend church where we attended church. He was going to go to a different church and we were going to come along. Well, my mom decided that she was not going to come along. And so my sisters and I gradually made our way to this new amazing church where my dad, probably a lot like, it would have reflected a lot like after, where my dad had actually discovered a relationship with Jesus. And so we left the Pinot Noir behind and we went to this new church. But for years and years and years, my mom refused to come. She refused to attend with us. And so for the remainder of my childhood, the church as an idea... The church as an entity existed in a place of tension for me. And it not only existed tension as far as the church itself, but it permeated the home that I grew up, on, grew up in. Now some of you, the church being a place of tension is a familiar perspective for you. In different ways than maybe what I describe. Because here's the tension for a lot of us. And life is full of tensions, by the way, if you haven't noticed. The pull and the pull and the pull. But here, here, here's the tension for a lot of us is that I truly love the church and the church makes me crazy. Let me say that again. I truly love the church and the church makes me nuts. 
Makes me nuts. Now, by the way, the reason I believe that's true is because the church is made up of you and I. The church is made up of people. So when we say the church and we like to say, oh, that church, right? It, we act as if it's some sort of an entity, but in reality, the church is us. It's the people that are there. And it's this crazy, mysterious thing that Jesus set in motion so long ago. This movement that we call the church. He established it, and he blessed it, and he gave the church this mission. And we have this mission. We have this mission to provide tremendous impact so that people can discover Jesus and they can tell a better story. And we believe that we can pursue hope together and we can do all these things at Active Church. And churches not only here in Ukaipa but around this community and around the world are all doing that. But I also recognize that the church has been a source of hurt and it's been a source of pain for so many. And maybe for some of you who are, who are here today or are watching today, you have experienced with that. And here's where I want to pause. Because the pain or the hurt that the church has caused has made it difficult for you, has become a barrier, has become somewhat of a boundary for you to actually do the most important thing. And that is engage with God. And that's why it matters. And that's why it's so relevant to this series that we are beginning today that Mike just teed up. It's a new series called Who Needs God? And when Mike originally texted me and he sent me the details and he asked me to come, I actually thought it was a question mark. I thought it was who needs God question mark. But then I recognized pretty quickly that it was actually a period. Like who needs God? Maybe an exclamation mark. Who needs God? And today, my hope would be that as we examine our role and our place in this entity of the church, that we will actually run it through the filter of the question that's being asked around who needs God. It's important. And my, and my hope today is that over the next few minutes that we will honestly look at the issues surrounding the church and surrounding us because the church is us, right? And how that impacts the statement that people are making around who needs God. Because for many, the church is representative of God, and God is represented by the church. And the church is representative of religion, and religion is associated with God. And religion and God are associated with the church, which means you and I. So it first forces the question, who needs God when I see his church. People may be asking that. Who needs God when I see his church? Who needs God when I see his followers? Christopher Hitchens, he was a famous atheist. I don't know how you become a famous atheist, but he was one. And he wrote a book in 2009, and the title of the book was God is Not Great. But the subtitle really caught my eye, and it's this. How religion poisons, poisons everything. How religion poisons everything. And you can imagine when this book came out, it caused a panic among the people who were poisoning everything. Debates and blogs and TV shows. Everyone was trying to make the case that religion actually improves everything and doesn't poison everything. But the poison argument is a pretty easy case to make because religion is often about control. 
right? When people say who needs God, it's because they see religion. And they see religion being about control. They see it being about cult-like conformity in many cases. They may even see it as self-righteous people imposing their standards on others and standards that others can't live up to and standards that no one would really even be able to accomplish. Religion poisons everything. That made me stop and think. Because I think many people who follow Jesus, and let me argue this today, Active Church, Jesus himself probably would agree with that statement. Dallas Willard said it this way. It'll be on the screen. He said, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way, that's the way of Jesus, the way by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boring. This is harsh, right? Let me keep going. Boringly lifeless, obsessive, and dissatisfied. Spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. Who needs God? Who needs God when Christians are stiff? Who needs God when his followers are unapproachable? Who needs God when their lives seem boring and lifeless, not full of joy? Who needs God when I'm around Christians who are dissatisfied? Paul said to the Corinthians this the same thing, but he said it pretty simply. He said, your gatherings do more harm than good. Basically what he's saying is, you guys need to take some time off from church. Because the way you're doing it, the way you're living it out is worse than if you weren't doing it at all. And so as we begin this series, Who Needs God? I want to look at some prophetic words together that Jesus said and spoke to a group of people called the Pharisees in the 23rd chapter of Matthew's gospel, his narrative about Jesus' life. And you can go there if you want. We're only going to focus on a couple verses, but I'm actually going to encourage you to read the rest this afternoon when you're bored pre-nap. Okay? Matthew chapter 23. And what we're about to read are some devastating words as Jesus takes something that has been built up, that is a source of authority and transformation, these Pharisees, and he turns it on its head and, he's, and, it, and he says, it's empty and it stands for nothing. He says, what the Pharisees are is making people ask the question, who needs God? If the Pharisees are what God looks like, then I don't know if I want anything to do with it. So let's begin here. Verse 2, Matthew chapter 23, it says this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, so crowds, kind of here, and then these core and key leaders that he was preparing, that he was, that he was setting up, who they didn't know it at the time, but he was actually preparing to lead, lead this movement called the church that you and I are a part of right now. Okay. So they're gathered around. And he said to them, the teachers of the law and the what? Say it with me. Pharisees. They sit in Moses' seat. That was an actual seat at one time, but this was metaphorical. It was a place of authority and a place of influence. He said they sit in this seat of authority and influence. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. And this caught me by surprise because basically he's saying, listen to them. He says they are sitting in a foundation of truth. These are individuals that you can base your life on. You should listen to their teaching. Now, I want to give you a quick 
context, we cool? In the time of Jesus, there were four main sects. There were these groups who were really these, these groups, and they were the sects in Judaism that really would pop up here and there. And if you read the New Testament at all, if you read the scripture around Jesus, you would see different points where they would come. There's four of them. Let me go through them real quick, and you'll understand why here in a second. There was this group called the Sadducees. If you're a church kid, you're familiar with the Sadducees, right? These individuals, this group of people, they were the cultural elite. And at that time, Judea was being ruled by the Romans. So the Sadducees decided that they were basically going to cooperate with, with Rome. And they were in control of Palestine, so they, they helped Rome maintain control. And the Sadducees were known for their compromise. Remember that word. So they, they, they compromised and they cooperated. That's the one. Then there was this other group called the Essenes. And they were disgusted by all the compromise that they saw the Sadducees living out. And so eventually the Essenes got so upset that they just went out into the wilderness. They just withdrew from life. They were like, we're done with all of this. They were separatists. So if the Sadducees compromised, the Essenes were separatists. And that brings us to this group called the Zealots. Some of you would have loved the Zealots. right? Because they not only hated Rome, but they hated anyone who cooperated with Rome. And a lot of times, they actually would resort to violence to do anything that would stop Rome. And their core objective was to see the kingdom of God established in their midst. They wanted to see the world reflecting the kingdom of God and the, and the way that God would want us to live and be. And so the zealots, they had some good objectives, but they used some questionable means. The Sadducees, compromise. The Essenes, separatists. The zealots, violence, which brings us to the Pharisees. They were the more thoughtful group, all right? They didn't, see a, they didn't see political power. They didn't see violence or compromise as a way of ushering in the kingdom of God. Instead, they decided that we need to adhere to, so closely to the laws of God that we will just be holy. And if we can get more and more folks to be as holy as we are, if we can live holy all the time, that eventually our holiness is gonna usher in the kingdom of God. And it was in this context that the Pharisees emerged. And you may say, well, Lee, that was nice. Thank you for telling us that. But I think it's important for you to understand the context. It's like trying to understand America today without the context of like, you know, the Civil War or civil rights or 9-11. We, we understand kind of where we got to because of context. And it's the same in the first century. Jesus is taking on this group, these teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And he's saying, listen to the Pharisees. And there was about 11,000. We think there was like five or six 11,000. And the Pharisees were scattered throughout all of the area. So every town, every village would have Pharisees that were a part of them. And they, they would carry some authority and they would be sprinkled in the synagogue. And you understand the cultural dynamic of why eventually the Pharisees decided that they needed to kill Jesus. Because there's 11,000 of them sprinkled everywhere and they have all this influence and power and they're trying to bring in the kingdom of God and they're trying to tell people, you need God. And the people are going, who needs God? Because you've got all these laws and things that you want us to live by. Now here's the part we need to pause on, Active Church. This is the part that messes me up. Because if we're honest, the way that we do church 
the way that we read the Bible, the way that we actually live out our, our, our faith, we like to throw the Pharisees under the bus. But what you need to know is that a church like ours, with the values we have and the things that we highlight, we would have been prime candidates to actually join with the Pharisees. Out of those four groups, we would have probably been the groups that are like, you know what? I, we like their teaching. We believe in this holiness thing. We believe that this is the behaviors and the way. We, we like what these guys are talking about. We're not really wanting to do the violent thing. We don't want to go live in the, in the wilderness of San Bernardino. We don't want to do any of that, right? We, 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 we like their teachings. We, we think we can do that. They believe that a Messiah, listen, they believe that a Messiah, a Savior was coming. They believe that change was on the horizon. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. So of all, here's the part that got me when I was studying this. So of all the groups, of all the people that were alive at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had a, hear me, a theology Theology means what you believe about God. They had a theology that would have been the most closest match to Jesus' theology. That's why I think they ultimately wanted to kill him. Because they were so close in what they believed, right? Yet the way they applied and practiced it deeply grieved Jesus. He says right off the bat this morning, he acknowledges their position, he acknowledges their teaching and their theology, but then he says, don't practice your faith the way they do. Here's what verse 3 says. He says, listen to them, but then he warns everyone. He says, do not do what they do. That's a lot of do's. Do not do what they do, for they do, there it is again, they do not practice what they preach. He says, they believe the right things, they just don't live the right way. His first statement, this statement, is basically the word we're all familiar with. It's this word, hypocrisy. He says, listen, these Pharisees, they have the right ideas. What they teach, you should actually listen to and apply to your life. Just don't watch their lives. Because if, really if you really want to get in connection with God, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. Because what they're doing is not close in proximity to what God wants. And this is a comment that you may hear, as I do, most oftenly from people who are maybe in the midst of dismantling or deconstructing their faith. People who are in the midst of asking the question, who needs God? It, center, it centers around this theme. The Christians I know, they'll say... The Christians I know say one thing, but they live another. Listen, I don't think anyone intentionally sets out to be a hypocrite. Like, whoa, Jesus loves me. This I know. Here I go. I'll be a hypocrite. None of us. None of us set out to intentionally do that. It just sort of happens. It's, we simply end up there. There's a psychological idea used in social sciences. I think it applies to this. It's called fundamental attribution error. Fundamental attribution error. And trust me, you've experienced this error this week even though you didn't know it. Maybe in your, your parenting or in your marriage, in your workplace, especially if you're on social media, you experienced this this week. Fundamental attribution error basically says this. When I, see some, when I see someone else do something that I don't like, I assign it to their character 
But when I do the very same thing, I assign it to my circumstances. Here's the example. Let me give you an example. You're driving somewhere. You've got your kids in the car. You're driving them to soccer practice. You're driving along. And all of a sudden, you're just minding your own business, and someone cuts you off. They're trying to get over. They're in the wrong lane. They've got to exit the freeway, and they cut you off, right? And immediately, you're like, oh, my gosh, what an idiot, right? I knew when they loosened up the, the, the marijuana laws in California, this is what would happen, right? The guy's probably high, he's probably he's smoking a joint, you know what I mean? He can't even drive. I knew this was what's going to happen. All these idiots on the road, right? It's character. And then the next day when you're late to work and you're not paying attention and all of a sudden, you've got to get over the right. You're like, oh, sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry, right? I never do this. It just, you know, it's just I'm late today. I apologize. I just, I just got to get over, right? Because for you, it's your circumstances. For the other person, it's their character. Their mistake is a deeply ingrained issue, right? Some of you, you got to review your week right now. You're already doing it. You're going, hmm, Right? This was worth you coming today. FAE, fundamental attribution error. And we do this as followers of Christ as well, right? So we start to understand the way of Jesus, right? And then we start to look at the world. Jesus talks a lot about this idea of judgment. And we become hypocrites because we look at the world and we go, man, I can't believe the world's behaving like that or behaving like this. And they, you know, oh my word, right? But then for us, as followers of Christ, even as we know better, We'll say things like, I know what the Bible says. I know what the church has been teaching me. But if you understood what I was going through right now, if you just understood that, the pressure I'm under, she doesn't treat me right. He doesn't really do this or that. You would understand why it's, dis, why it's different for me. And it's so disillusioning when it happens in our lives. But let's notch it up a, a level just for the sake of today. It's more disillusioning when it happens in the church and especially with religious people or followers of Christ or leaders, okay? Leaders. Time after time, we've watched church leaders who have said one thing and done another. And in doing so, they've caused tremendous pain and confusion. And we have to be careful because we look at the leaders and, we, and for them, it's a character issue. And for you, it's a circumstance issue, right? But there's no pain like religious hypocrisy. And Jesus was saying that to the Pharisees. He's saying, listen to what they say, but be careful because I'm watching them and what they do does not reflect that. And there is no pain like that. Now listen, some of you watching today, some of you listening today, you have been victims of this hypocrisy. You've listened to someone, you trusted someone, you followed someone who you thought was worth following and then later you found out they weren't even living what they were saying and it has scarred you. And I want to stop right now today at Active Church and say, I want to apologize as much as I can for them I want to apologize for that behavior because too often the church has harbored that behavior and so it's forced us into a place to ask again and to state again who needs God if the church is going to act like that who needs God if, if the leaders are going to act like that who needs God if my coworker who attends active every Sunday says this and acts like that who needs God and Jesus is saying that to these Pharisees, saying, you're hypocrites. We have to stop excusing these things in others, but also in ourselves. In ourselves. 
We are sorry if that has impacted you. If that has been a barrier for you to understand what God wants to do in your life. He goes on, he says this, you need to listen to them, but don't do what they say because it's hypocrisy. Okay? Then he goes on in verse four, he says, this is, what, this is what you do, you Pharisees. He says, you tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and you put them on other people's shoulders, but you, but they themselves, are not willing to lift a finger to, do, to move them. Here's how they would do this. They would take the core teachings that they had at that time, the core teachings of the law in the Old Testament, and in order to make sure, see, because remember what they thought, if we can just get everybody to abide by the law. So in order to make sure that no one would violate it, they would take, here's the, here's the rule, right? Here's the best practice in life that God's established. And they said, let's make sure no one gets close to violating. So let's set up all these other rules. Let's put some sub rules in place and more rules. Let's get, make sure that people are so far away from the actual core of what the teaching is that the chance of them violating it will be nil. But in, what they were doing actually was they were creating another destructive word and idea and it's this word that goes alongside hypocrisy. It's legalism. Okay? When people ask who needs God, they ask the question, who needs God in the midst of hypocrisy? And they secondarily say, who needs God if God's all about legalism? And the problem with the Pharisees is these rules that actually were over here at the edge and weren't at the heart of the center of the law itself, these secondary traits over time took on primary importance. And the typical person could not even live them out. And the Pharisees' hope was that if holiness would take hold, it would usher in the kingdom of God and the Messiah would come. They would say things like, can we make every home holy and every table a temple? Can we live out our lives at a high standard? And stop right now. Some of us were like, yeah. Right? Some of you, you hear that and you go, yeah, our world is terrible. People's behavior is terrible. People are way too woke today. Right? right? We need to rein it in, Right? We need, to, we need to get back to, we say this, we need to get back to right, this and that and the other thing, right? And our intent is good. Like, honestly, if, if that's you, that's probably me sometimes. Like, in our heart of hearts, like, that's good, right? Like, we really do have some good intent. But in the midst of that good intent, we establish this legalistic framework that God never established. That then creates a barrier for people. The Pharisees, they were, they were making people stagger under things like the Sabbath. The, like making it so hard. Or the dietary practices. The things that they could eat or couldn't eat. And they got caught up in the symbols of faithfulness versus the substance of faithfulness. And that's why they got so annoyed with Jesus. Because he kept violating the Sabbath. Remember that? Right? Or he was eating and drinking with sinners. And they were like, no, 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 no. Like, this is how we're supposed to behave, right? And you and I would probably do the same thing, right? No, like Jesus, we like you. We like your te teachings, but stop doing that. You can't do that. You can't eat with Zacchaeus. Why is that woman, like, washing your feet? It's disgusting. You know she's kind of, uh. Can't do that, right? Legalism. And Jesus didn't even seem to emphasize these things that much. So why are we? And listen, before you go nuts and start sending Mike emails and all that, stop, all right? Stop, okay? Send them to me, it's fine, I don't care. Right? Here's the thing. Jesus absolutely condemned sin. That's not what we're talking about, right? 
He confronted people with their sin, but he didn't coerce them. He was challenging, but he always came from a place of grace and about them understanding their identity in Christ because he knew if they understood it, then they would begin to walk in it. And could this be us, this pharisaical attitude? Could it be us? I'm looking in the mirror myself. Don't you hate looking in the mirror sometimes? But when we show up here on a Sunday or we tune in on a Sunday, I would hope we'd have some expectation of transformation. Right? So it's okay if you're a little like uncomfortable because we need to be like challenged a little bit. We have this responsibility. And so often we hear... And we talk about the kingdom of God. And here's what it looks like to live out. Here's what it is to be a change maker. Here's what it is to pursue hope. Here's what it is to do these things. And we talk about the kingdom of God, but then we add these burdens that Jesus was talking about, right? There's popular ones right now, like if you're gonna follow Jesus, you need to vote this way. If you're gonna follow Jesus, we, you need to have certain political opinions. If you're going to follow Jesus, you, we, we moralize certain cultural issues. We demand that people read certain Bible translations, right? I'm about to read from the message paraphrase. Don't email me, okay? It's okay, right? Like if, if you're a Christian, you only read the NIV, Pastor Lee, right? Or do certain things. The message paraphrase, I, I'm not kidding, I am going to read it. The, Eugene Peterson, his paraphrase, this is how he paraphrased what we, what we just read. He says, it's all spit, he's talking about the Pharisees, it's all spit and polished veneer. Love that. Instead of giving God's laws as food and drink by which you can banquet on God. Come on. So good, isn't it? Instead, you package it in bundles of rules, loading you down like pack animals. And they seem to take pleasure in watching you stagger under these loads and wouldn't think of lifting a finger to help. And you want to say, whoa, 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 Lee, calm down. Whoa, calm down, right? And I would say, right word, wrong context, right? Because woe is right, because Jesus is about after this to give a series of woes. And what you're going to do is go home today and you're going to read them because they're pretty dramatic. Like, this is not the soft and huggy, fuzzy Jesus, this is where he gets real with them, right? And it's woe to us as well because there's a generation of young people who unfortunately are streaming out of our churches and they're the fastest demographic rising in America is what they call the nuns. But they have no connection. As we look around, they may see certain things that are secondary. They may see the hypocrisy or the legalism. And they want to faithfully follow Jesus. They want to need God but we're making it harder for them. And woe is exactly what Jesus would say to the Pharisees. Not warm and fuzzies. He would say things like this. Woe to you, children of hell. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, at one point, he says, you whitewashed tombs. Like you look good, but you really have death there. There's a place in Tucson where I grew up. It's called Old Tucson. It's, it's southern Arizona, and it's, um, it literally used to be like a movie studio. So if, you ever, if you're of any age at all, you would watch like John Wayne movies, or you watch Three Amigos, or any of those 80s and 90s, like Gunsmoke, all that. They would come and they would film them at this little um, western city that they built out in the middle of the desert outside Tucson. And then when they weren't filming things... It was an amusement location. Like as a kid, we would go out there and there would be like a few rides and all that. And they would have these gunfights. 
that they would stage in the middle of the day. So every couple hours, the guys would come out, right? And they'd, hey, let's go. And they'd stand at the end of the street, right? And they'd shoot and they'd be on the rooftops and they'd fall off all these stuntmen and they'd do this whole thing. Where my mom and dad actually met at Old Tucson. My dad was working um, in the facilities area and my mom, she was working one of the gift shops, but she had a secondary job. And her job was whenever they would do the gunfights, at the end when there'd be bodies laying all over the street, her job was to run out of the store and scream and cry and fall on top of the guys and be like, I'm sorry, I can't believe it, right? And she would wail and she would shriek and yell. That was her job and how she met my dad. Well, in the ancient Near East, when Jesus would say, whoa, they actually would understand what he was saying because they had a practice similar. When someone would get sick and they were about to die or when someone was dying, they would, it was very important that the village would know. So they would begin to mourn early and they'd get really loud and they would shriek and they would yell. And then sometimes, you know what they would have to do? Hire professional mourners. So they would hire people like my mom to come to the house and they would fall and they would screech and they would yell and they would shriek and they would tell the whole town this dramatic and impactful noise. You couldn't miss it. And so when Jesus pronounces these woes on the Pharisees, one biblical scholar said it this way. He said, Jesus is a mourner that God has hired to announce to his people that their religious system is dying. Woe to you. Now, we love to memorize and quote and read, and we should. John 3.16, it's great, right? It's kind of the core verse. But we probably should add to it some memorization of 3.17, the next one. Because it says this, not only did God so love the world that he sent his only son, you know the rest. But in 17, it says this, for God did not send his son into the world to what? Read it with me, active. Condemn the world. But that the world through him may be saved. In other words, it was not... God did not come in the world for us to live out our lives with hypocrisy. God did not come into the world for us to live out our lives of legalism. It's an announcement of life and freedom and good news. So when Jesus talked about the thank you. When Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, he said things like it's the best news you've ever heard. Right? Think about the pictures he drew when he would talk about it. It's a great banquet. It's like a wedding feast. He says it's like a father who would go to welcome his lost son or a person looking for a lost coin or a lost sheep and celebrating when they found it. That's the images he gives us, right? It's like a treasure in the field that you find out about it and you sell everything you have so you can buy the field and dig the treasure up. It is full of this joy and all of this celebration and life and freedom. That's what we love about Active Church is that we have a possibility because of this organization organization and this community of active church that many of you have arrived at rather recently or have been a part of for a long time we believe that we have a chance to actually live out the good news that Jesus proclaimed we have a chance to do that right so when people say who needs God we have an answer right but we also have a life that represents something that they might also desire so here's the question of the day here's our question how can how can our truth, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about God, how can our truth, how can your truth be practiced in such a way that we avoid self-righteousness and create a culture that brings life, not death? That's a lunchtime conversation, isn't it? How are we or are we not creating a culture? Are we more bringers of death 
or bringers of life. We talk about the need to take this good news to those who have not heard it yet or have not responded to it. But maybe what needs to happen a bit earlier is Jesus needs to convert us, people who are followers of Jesus, back into being actual followers of Jesus. Maybe this moment is, is less about us converting the world and more about Jesus converting us. Who needs God? Maybe we do more. Right? So two groups of people I want to talk to before we're done. Number one, if you're a carrier of hurt today, the church as an entity, the church as people, potentially leaders within the church. You're sitting here today and you have been hurt. Jesus says this very simply. He says, come to me. Come to me. That's his invitation. It is a bold invitation. He throws himself right in front of this system of the Pharisees, right in front of these systems of hypocrisy and legalism. And he says, all these things will not give you rest. Self-righteousness, empty rules will not give you rest, but I will give you rest. Here's the rest of what he says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Think about it in contrast to the Pharisees' yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and what? Humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I love this last sentence. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why are we laying burdens on people, church, that are heavy? Why is our yoke so uncomfortable? When Jesus says, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So if you've been beat down, overburdened, disillusioned, Jesus, it's a beautiful time for, God to, for you to take up God on his invitation and come to me. Even as the church wrestles with repentance and restoration and healing for you. And then those of us who are followers of Jesus today, we have a challenge, don't we? Right now the church doesn't have a great reputation. Especially with those who are carriers of hurt. So what if we were carriers of hope? Right? It's one of our core values Right? Is that we would, we would do that together, right? Here at Active. And we have to recommit to representing the hope because we carry that responsibility. We can put the life-giving, hope-restoring, disruptive grace of Jesus on display at this moment. We can convert people's religious burdens that they're feeling at your workplace, at the school, in your neighborhood, your cul-de-sac, that club soccer team that your kid plays on, that high school hallway that you walk we can put those religious burdens away for people and give life through freeing grace. Jesus reflects that over here. You were given a packet as you came in today. Very small packet. Take it out. If you don't have one, you can grab one on the way out. Maybe you missed it in the bowl. Don't worry. There's plenty. I wanted you to have this. I don't want you to open it up at this point um, because I think this is kind of where we land today, Right? Because Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, right? He says, you are the salt of the earth. I've got a bigger bowl today than you do. He says, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its what? How can it be made salty again? And this is the question that we should be asking as a church, right? Because I think the world is actually saying this to us. It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot of men. The world's saying, what good is the church? Who needs God? Right? Who needs it? And Jesus is saying, be the salt of the earth. That's what we face right now, guys. 
Jesus gave this assignment that we would be salt, that we would bring life, that we would bring that vibrancy, that we would bring, for lack of a better word, flavor, right? The good news of Jesus. Now listen, legalism is complex, right? But legalism is simple. Compassion is complex. Like legalism, the hard rules, boom, right? That's simple. This is how you live, this is how you do, right? When we want to be compassionate, when we want to live as the salt of the earth, I want to warn you, it gets really complex. We got to deal with people's issues. It gets messy. We can't just blow them off. But Jesus says, be the salt of the earth. Be the salt of the earth. Here's what simple saltiness looks like. I was, in, I was in Texas three weeks ago. I was with the church there. And I went out to dinner on uh, Saturday night to a Mexican place. I went out to dinner with Tiffany and Mike last night to a Mexican place. It must be a thing. So we're out at dinner at this place. And we're just having conversation. And I noticed this gal that worked at the establishment walking by. And she, just, she looked tired and just looked like she was having a day. And eventually she comes over to our table. And the pastor that I was with leaned over to her and he said, hey, how you doing? And she said, I'm, I'm not doing well at all. She said, my back is in so much excruciating pain. She was kind of bent over. She said, I can barely walk, but I've been waiting for six weeks, insurance and all that, to get an MRI to find out what's going on. And she says, I can't stay home. I gotta come to work, right? So she's just, uh, and, and so he leans over to her and says, can we just, can we just pray for you right now? Right? And I'm like, I just want my quesadilla, man. Like what a... <laughs> What are we doing, right? But he leans in and she leans over. And it wasn't like a moment, like the whole restaurant didn't stop. Nobody even knew what was going on. And he just grabbed her hand and I just leaned in and put my arm on her shoulder. And he just prayed a simple prayer of just comfort and peace. And as he was doing that, I was just thinking of this, right? The salt's just getting poured out on her. And when we were done praying, she, she, she stood up and she wasn't healed her back still hurt, right? But there was healing that was beginning in her heart because of that moment. Because he was salty at that moment. And she had a little bit of hope and a little bit of peace and a little bit of encouragement that she walked away with to finish her day and hopefully move on into her life. Because compassion is complex, folks. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do this week with this packet of salt Maybe this afternoon or tomorrow morning, you need to walk your neighborhood and you need to tear open the salt. Don't put it in the neighbor's plants and kill their plants. <laughs> but you need to walk your neighborhood and you just need to give it a little, right? Maybe you need to go into your office at your work tomorrow. Maybe you need to take a little larger salt shaker and place it next to your computer where you hack out emails all day, right? And just go. Maybe active church with all the salt that we can spread through our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces. We actually are crazy enough to believe that we can see the kingdom of God transform the communities that we live in, right? So I challenge you today, be the salt. I can't tell you where that is. I can't tell you who it's with, but you're equipped, right? And I want to pray with you today. 
that that will actually be true in your life today and throughout this week and beyond. Can I pray with you? Father, we just pray right now in your name that we would take the salt of the kingdom of God, the power at which it is, and God, that we would take the responsibility seriously to live it out in its fullness. God, we ask right now for those of us who have lived a bit on the hypocrisy side, for those of us who have maybe unintentionally have stepped into a season of legalism. God, I pray that we would repent. God, that we would confess that and we would step it back and we would lead with the saltiness that your kingdom of God, that we would lead with your example of the yoke being easy and the burden being light. God, help us as individuals and as a church to reflect that because we know we live in a community who needs God. And God, help us to be that portal, that pathway for them to discover you as we pursue hope together. God, we ask this in your name. Amen.